1964, in Miami Beach, there was a world heavyweight bout between a young man named Cassius Clay, only 23 years of age, and the reigning champion, Sonny Liston. Cassius Clay was a seven to one underdog, and he stunned the sporting world by beating Sonny Liston. The next year, there's a rematch in Maine. And by that time, Cassius Clay had changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and so he and Sonny Liston once again fought. Clay was once again an underdog, but in the first round in one of the greatest upsets in sports history as far as boxing, Cassius Clay had a technical knockout of Sonny Liston in a bout that lasted one hour, excuse me, one minute and 44 seconds. The picture that adorned Life magazine the next week is one that's well known in sporting history. Is Muhammad Ali standing over his vanquished foe. Um, when I think of that photograph, and I've seen that photograph in the years after that, I always think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul is talking about the fact that the gospel has been given to people who are men and women of jars of clay. And then he says that, that we have this surpassing glory in jars of clay, our own bodies, to show that the surpassing worth and power is not from us, but it is from the Lord. And then he says, he has this couplet. He says, we are afflicted on in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And, and there's a, the, the, we are knocked down, one version says, but we are not destroyed. And I always want to think about that picture of Muhammad Ali over Sonny Liston, I always think that Sonny Liston did not get off the mat, but believers do. Believers get knocked down, we're perplexed, but we're never in despair. We, 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 we keep on going because we have resources by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus. For example, in Psalm 3, the psalmist talks about our resources, and David says, I'm surrounded by all types of people who want to do me in. They taunt me. They make fun of me. But he says, verse 3, but you are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You, you give me power. You're a shield. You give me power. And you lift me up physically or psychologically lift me up. And, and then he says this. He says, uh, therefore, I will I lay down and slept. Verse 5, I awoke again for the Lord Jehovah sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around because the Lord sustains me. We have resources, therefore we get up. Psalm 4, the same theme. Psalm 4, the psalmist talks about God's mercy in his life and he says, he says, Lord, I'm surrounded by adversaries, but my prayer is lift up the light of your face and shine upon us. And then he says in verse 7, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. And then he talks about sleep again. He says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And so you see, sleep is a synonym for trust. Sleep, I can, I can rest in your provision. I can trust in the provision and the goodness that the Father has given me. There was a man named William Wilberforce who worked for 40 years to eradicate slavery in the British Empire out of obedience to Jesus. And he saw it happen just a few days before he died. 
But during the height of the controversy with Wilberforce, while he was pushing hard to get rid of slavery and pushing hard for the recovery of morality as a believer in England, one of his detractors said the following. He said, he said about Wilberforce, he said, when it comes to William Wilberforce, and he didn't say this in any way positively, he said, it is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit, which so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous from blows. I love that. He says he's got, he has this enthusiastic spirit, and he wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit, just his, his, his persona. He has that enthusiastic spirit, which comes from the Lord, we know, that then instead of yielding when he's knocked down, he gets up even stronger. So we're, we're knocked down but we're never destroyed. We get up off the mat. So we, we come to this passage this morning. I'm gonna go back to, we're gonna read from Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 16, about the little children coming to Jesus. Mark 10, verse 13 to 16. And hear the scripture. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So here's my thesis. We are to receive the kingdom of God like a little child, which means that we come in weakness and humility to Jesus. And as we encounter Jesus, he empowers us to go out and do his will or to do his bidding. So we come to him as a little child, whether it's the first time you come in faith or whether you've been a believer for five decades, we come to him as a little child in weakness and he empowers us to go out and live by faith and to do his bidding. So first of all, let me get rid of the sentimental view of this passage. You, 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 you'll hear people read this passage and they'll say, oh, we love children, children are wonderful, and we do love children, and they are wonderful. And when he says receive the kingdom like a child, he means to come in innocence and purity and with the unfurled brow and all this kind of stuff about kids. You just come in your sweetness and your mildness. And, and I, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think that's to totally miss the passage. And in fact, if you look at the view of mankind, for example, a guy named John Locke clearly stated this, Aristotle stated that John Locke in the 1700s talked about man is born with a blank slate. It says it's called the tabula rasa. So you're born with a blank slate, you come out as a blank slate, and your environment determines the way you live. Okay, that's one view of man. A second view of man is by a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is a forerunner of the French Revolution. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, no, it's, man is not just a blank slate, but man is a person of innate goodness. Man comes out good, and, and so the culture around him will build attitudes in his life that will either bless him or destroy him. Now, many Americans are, have bought into the tabula rasa or to the innate goodness of man. The Bible says this. The biblical view is that man is made in the image of God. Therefore, all men can have relationship, they can express beauty, they can embrace beauty, 
They, they can be people, if they respond to God's work in their life, being made in his image, can obey the, the moral laws around them. But man, it's also a sinner. And sin has infiltrated every part of our being. So, so made in the image of God, but a sinner. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the Bible says that we're born in sin. We're conceived in sin. That sin is part of what we deal with. Therefore, we reject the, the innocence argument or the tabula rasa argument. We understand that people are sinful, even children. People that argue for the innate goodness of children, I don't think they've ever been a parent or, or a grandparent. I, I, I don't, they haven't spent much time with children. Let me give you a couple of examples. So we have um, three grandkids on the West Coast, two here. And so my son, very kindly on the West Coast, will FaceTime his mom and me twice a week, which is just, just a joy to our heart. And so they'll FaceTime, and there's a five-year-old son, grandson, and he'll get the first talk, and he'll get tired, and he'll wander off. And then there's a three-year-old that'll get on. And, and peeking behind her shoulder is the year-and-a-half-old sister, the, the capoose. And so the three-year-old will talk, and, and usually the, the year-and-a-half gets left off. So this past week, the three-year-old was just kind of jabbering. I couldn't tell what she was saying. She was jabbering. And, and all of a sudden, her sister is peeking around, and all of a sudden, I, I see a wooden spoon come up and start beating her sister on the head. And, and her sister grabs her head and runs off crying, and all of a sudden, the wooden spoon is dropped, and the year and a half gets into the camera and just smiles, just smiles. Now, when you're a parent, when you're a parent and you see something like that, you say this, Wow. She has lots of personality, close quote. That's shorthand for buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be a stormy ride. It is. Or this, is, this happened, to, it's happened to all parents. You go shopping with your uh, two or three-year-old. And your two or three-year-old, maybe four-year-old, says, I would like that red engine or that bear or whatever. And you as a parent say, no, not today. You know, your birthday's coming up. We'll think about that in a couple months. And instead of saying, thank you, mother, for dispensing wisdom into my heart, the child starts crying or even falls into the, onto the ground and has a fit in public. And you're standing there. You're a parent. And it's, it's, I mean, what do you do? You're standing I mean, You're embarrassed. You want to say, to everybody takes after her mother or something like that. But, but, but instead, if people are looking at you, say, wow, she missed her nap, right? You get an excuse or it's time to eat. But really what you should say is she's a sinner and she's having a fit. I do that. I don't fall to the ground and beat it. I'm, I'm older to do, I don't do that, but I still have fits because I am a sinner. So you look at this passage, and it's really about people coming to Jesus, children coming to Jesus in weakness and in humility and leaving in power to do his will. So just this point, I love this passage in this regard. I said it last week. I want to say it again. I just think it's so profound that it comes from this text. These parents who had a limited knowledge of Jesus, they saw him as a Articulate, authoritative speaking, trained carpenter who was stumping 
the scribes and the Pharisees and who loved people. They may have heard that he was a miracle worker, but they intuitively knew there was something powerful about this man, and so they wanted to bring their little babies. Really, the word here for children means children that nurse at your breast. They wanted to bring even their little babies and let him put his hands upon them and bless them because they knew there was something about this man. And I said last week, listen, if that's what they believed, how much more should we say, I need to get my kids in the presence of Jesus? He's not just a great teacher. He is God in the flesh. He spoke all creation into being. All things are made by him, through him, and for him. And in him, all things hold together. Colossians 1 says, I need to get my kids, my grandkids in the presence of Jesus. Or I need to get the kids I'm mentoring or teaching or coaching in the presence of Jesus. We should have a burning passion to do that. Because when you're in the presence of Jesus, there's healing, there's refreshment, there's encouragement, there's strengthening. I need to be in the presence of Jesus. So I, you come today as a child in, my, in our weakness and in our humility and our brokenness and say, Lord Christ, have mercy upon us. So just... A word of caution, and that is this. When you think about being a parent or about relationships, there are, there are studies out there that you can take even in the church about how to raise kids or how to have a marriage or how to do this or how to do that. And, 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 and they're not bad. You know, they're, 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 they're okay, but they're really about behavior modification. They're about, if a child does this, you do that. If he does do that, you do this. And you do boom, 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 boom. And you're very regimented. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. But I, I have seen programs in the church that never mention Jesus. That never mention the grace of the cross. That never mention walking by grace and forgiveness and kindness. It's all about do this, boom. Or don't, boom. Do this, boom. And I, I, just, I just think it's really backwards. And so, so if you're taking any type of program, and there's nothing wrong with behavior modification to a degree, but, but if you're not about Jesus and getting your kids and your spouse and your grandkids and your fellow believers in the presence of Jesus, we've missed it. We've just missed it. We've missed the boat. There's a course that I saw here at church on marriage enrichment. It's called uh, Reengage. And I, I love it. I think it's a great little course. It's 16 weeks, and it's, we have a lot of people that have done it here. And when we did it, and I've thought about it and gone through the book a couple of times, I come away with two things. I try to boil it down to a sentence or two. One statement is, in my marriage, I need to stay inside my, well, they say you're hula hoop. You stay inside your own self and you work on yourself. You don't worry primarily about your spouse. It's about you. It's about you. The second thing that I get from this is you take the Word of God and you study it and you get in the presence of Jesus and Jesus changes you by the Holy Spirit. That's what I took away from it. And I thought it's all about grace. It's all about encountering Jesus. It's not behavior modification primarily. It's saying you know Jesus and Jesus changes your behavior. So we come to him. We come to him as, as children who are, who are weak, who are needy, and we cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us. So we come as children. We come as children in our weakness and our need, and we leave changed. Listen to Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, children, 
and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's going out and doing his bidding. Weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and go out. Philippians 3, Paul, the trained Pharisee. He says, when it came to being a Pharisee, I was the top dog. I was faultless. And he said, but when I came to see the superlative beauty of the cross of Jesus, all of that became nothing more than a garbage pile. And listen, the word there is not a, a, a recycling bin with, with, with you know, paper. The, the word there is a putrid garbage pile with rotting stuff in it that makes you gag when you walk by. Paul says, my pursuit of self-worth became a putrid pile of garbage compared to knowing Jesus. As children, we come in weakness and humility. Second Kings chapter 5 in the Old Testament, there's a story about a Syrian general named Naaman. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Kings 5, this is how it describes him. He was a great man. He was held in high favor. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And so Naaman goes out on a raiding party and he captures a young Jewish girl and he brings her back into his house and she becomes a slave to his wife. And as the girl gets to know the wife and respects and cares for the family. She, she says, I, I wish that your husband would go to Israel and meet a prophet there who can heal people of leprosy. And so I'm sure Naaman first went, oh, forget that. That's ridiculous. That's, but maybe the leprosy became more obvious and grew. And so Naaman goes to the king of Syria a big kingdom, and he says, I want to go to Israel and meet this prophet. At that time, a small kingdom. So it's the big kingdom versus the small kingdom. And so the king says, absolutely go. And so he gives Naaman a letter of introduction to take to the king. Naaman goes to Israel, the Bible says, with horses and chariots and a small army and lots of money and 10 changes of clothes. That's what it says. So he goes to Israel, he goes to see the king, he gives the king the letter of introduction, and the letter says this, this is my trusted warrior, leader, Naaman, please heal him of his leprosy. And the king of Israel reads it, you know what he does? He tears his clothes and he falls on the ground. And he said, who am I to heal someone of leprosy? And he says, what he says is, is that this is just a ruse so that I will fail so that the king of Syria will come in and destroy us and gobble up our kingdom. And he's undone. But word of all this gets to the prophet whose name is Elisha. And so Elisha sends a messenger and he says, tell Naaman to come to my house and I'll tell him what to do. So Naaman goes to the house of Elisha with his army small army, with his horses and chariots, with his money, with his 10 changes of clothes. And as he's approaching, Elisha sends a servant out and he says to the servant, uh, go meet Naaman and tell him to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River. 
And so the servant meets Naaman at the front door. Elisha doesn't even get out of his recliner. He's sitting there watching ESPN or whatever. He's not even going to leave his recliner. And so he goes out and says to Naaman, Naaman, the prophet says, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan. And the Bible says that Naaman was filled with anger. He says, how dare he treat me this way? I am a mighty man of valor. How dare he not even come out here and talk to me? He says, there are rivers in Syria. I could dip in the rivers of Syria seven times. I don't need to go to the Jordan for heaven's sake. I've traveled all this distance with horses and chariots and a small army and much, a bunch of money and 10 changes of clothes. What's going on? And as he talked, he gets more and more angry. And the Bible says he, became, he was angry. Then it says he departed in a rage. Rage. And he's leaving. And there are some servants with him. Thanks be to God for people who talk you off the, the ledger of rage. And they said, Father, term of endearment, Father, maybe you should dip yourself in the Jordan River. Why don't you? And so Naaman, the man who was full of leprosy, went to the Jordan River when he came to his mind, and he dipped himself seven times. And this is what happened. Verse 14 of 2 Kings 5. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, Elisha, he and all of his company and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from me, your servant. He professed his faith in the God of Israel. So I, I look at this and I go, you know, we need to come as helpless little children and receive from the Lord and do what he says. There are people that will hear this today, either in person or on live stream, and they're not really believers, and they're going, you know, I just don't get all the singing about Jesus dying on the cross, that Jesus is eternal God. People talk about him as being the Lamb of God who bleeds on the cross for our sin, that covers our sin. I don't get it. It's kind of like dipping in the Jordan several times, and then the Holy Spirit rushes in, and he opens your eyes, and you see, and you dip, and you're saved. But there are a lot of us all of us deal with name and attitudes after we come to Jesus. And we read the Bible and we're dealing with something. And we say, I know the Bible says that, but I'm not going to do that. And when you do that, you forfeit the power of God in your life. You see, we come to him weakness, in weakness and humility and we leave empowered to do his bidding. There's no pride involved when you stand at the foot of the cross. So I've, I haven't gone to the gym since March 15th until two weeks ago. So I started going back to the gym a little bit. And uh, I was, you know, you're, I'm there one day and there was a smattering of people. And uh, um, so I'm, I'm in there lifting very small weights, okay? Very small weights. And I'm looking at some of the late 20s, early 30 guys who are spotting each other in the bench press. And, and they, their, their shirts are cut here, and, and they really are well-built. I mean, they're, they're at the, the apex of their manhood physically. And, and they're in there, and as they lift weights, they're kind of flexing, looking in the mirrors, mirrors everywhere, looking in the mirrors. And then when they go from weight station to weight station, you know, they've got this strut. 
They've got the look. They've got it going on. And I'm just kind of laughing inside. And then I look up and I see some 50, late 50s, early 60-year-olds lifting weights, small weights. And they're strutting too. And I really get tickled. And I'm thinking, guys, your strutting years were 30 years ago. I mean, they're way, way, way back there. If you ever could strut, they're way back there. And I just thought there should be some signs that say, no strutting allowed. And, and really, I'm looking for a gym, if you can tell me where it is, that has no mirrors anywhere. Because I don't want to see what I look like. I just want to get there and work out and get out. So, so they'll have mirrors. But I thought, isn't, isn't that true about us today? We love to strut. We love to say, man, I've got it all together. That was a problem with the church in Revelation called the church of Laodicea. The Lord says, I'm going to judge you because you run around saying, I've got it all together. And you don't realize you're poor, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and you have no clothes. So if we're going to have the power of God, we come to him as children in weakness, in humility, as we trust in him. I think of the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs, one of the things of Proverbs is, is made the simple listen and get smart. Simple people are people that need direction. People, simpler, are, are, people that are simple are people that will fall for a Ponzi scheme. Or simple people are people, men who will fall for the, the overtures of an adulterous woman. Or, or simple people are people that don't listen to counselors of wisdom. And so the Bible throughout the book of Proverbs says, don't be simple, don't be simple. Listen to Proverbs 1 verse 4. I, I write these words the scripture says to give prudence to the simple. I just want to give wisdom to the simple. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Verse 22, how long, how, how long, oh, simple ones, will you love being simple? He said, if you just, just, just listen to me and I'll fill you with wisdom. But if you continue to be a simple person, it's... It's not good because the end is verse 32. The simple are killed by their turning away. See, we hear the word, but we turn away. And he says, you're killed for that. You miss the power. You miss the blessing. So come as a child that's weak and humble, so receive it. And then you go out to do his bidding. Chapter 9 talks about simple people. It's all throughout Proverbs. Listen to chapter 9, verse 4. It says this, whoever is simple, wisdom cries out at the head of the street, whoever is simple, let him turn in here to him who lacks sense. She says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. I love that. Leave your simple ways and live. So we come to the Lord in weakness and humility and we say, Lord, teach me, and we leave empowered. That's the whole theme of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about this church in this great cosmopolitan city surrounded by all types of bright, articulate, wealthy, artistic people. And, and Paul thunders forth this. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So that, verse 21, no human could 
boast in the presence of God. He chose the weak and the powerless and the things that are not and those that are not noble. So we come to the Lord in weakness like children. So I step back and I ask myself, well, how, how do you know that you're approaching being like a child to receive the kingdom? Let me just two things. Number one is from C.S. Lewis, chapter 8, Mere Christianity. Lewis says that if you think a lot about yourself, you're being acted on by not God, but by the devil. And then he says this, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. And then he says this, it's better just to forget about yourself. And so I, I look at this and I go, you know, one, one standard of, of being a child in the presence of Jesus is self-forgetfulness. You're not impressed with yourself. Not impressed with your degrees. Not impressed with your, the accolades that people lay on you. Not impressed with what you're, 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 impre- you're really impressed with Jesus. And you feel self-forgetfulness. The other I get from James, just two things. In James chapter 1, how do you know you're going in humility? Listen. My beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So if I'm going to grow in humility, I've got to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I've got to realize I don't have the answer for everything. In fact, I don't have the answer for much of anything. God does. And then he goes on, he talks about, how do you, how do you get there? And he says, he says, brothers, I plead with you uh, to, to, be, to be people who, you, you, you put away all the filthiness and the rampant wickedness and you receive with meekness the implanted word of God. You, you flee from sin and you receive the word with meekness, which is able to save your souls. And then it says, as you receive the word, gives this great illustration, don't be like a man who just looks at himself in the mirror and walks away without making any adjustments, but gaze intently into the law of God who gives, which gives liberty and make an adjustment and be doers of the word and not hearers only. So if I want to be a man of, of, of childlike meekness, I am a doer of the word. As I gaze upon it and think about it and ponder it, again, empowered to go out. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says in Matthew 11. And it's interesting, right there, he says, gaze intently into the word and be doers of the law. He, he jumps into an application of what it means to be an empowered disciple. I mean, James really gets into it. He says, verse 26, if anyone considers himself to be religious but doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, his religion is worthless, worthless, I mean, worthless. And then he says this, religion that God our Father considers as pure and undefiled is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. So if if I'm going to be a man who receives the word, who's empowered, James says, I'll, I'll watch my speech, I'll watch what I say, I'll give a good report, 
I'll speak words of blessing, and then I'll look after people that cannot protect themselves. I'll go after those people who, who are oppressed and put down and disenfranchised and considered to be the afterthoughts and, and not part of the mainline culture. I will defend them and love them and pray for them and care for them. And I'll keep myself from being polluted by the world. So I, I would plead with you to understand you are to receive the kingdom today like a little child in weakness and humility and then you're empowered to go out. You're empowered to go out. So here's one application statement. I want you to say, I come to Jesus in weakness and humility. I go out empowered. What is one thing as you study the Bible as you pray, what is one thing that the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would ask you today to do this week as an empowered disciple of Jesus? One thing. Now, now I'm going to be a little, well, I'll just say it. And ask God to make it something that's pushing you. It's a hard thing. Your one thing is not, this week I will read the Bible. I mean, okay, we can do that. What relationship has been broken that needs to be mended? Who should you go to and ask for forgiveness? What family member or friend do you need to write a letter to or try to call and say, I, want to, I just want to ask you today, as we've been through this pandemic and life is uncertain and we have these issues in our cities, what do you think about the reality of Jesus and life after death? What do you, I mean, something's going to push you. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, I'll, you know I'll, I'll walk three times this week or I'll, I'll read the Bible. I'm not talking about something that's going to push you. Where the Father says, you know, you come as a child I receive you, I empower you to go out. See, God didn't save you just to be on the team, to sit on the team and say, man, it's good to be on the team. God saved you to be a person who is a difference maker in your neighborhood, in the nations, on your campus. He's called us to do that. Receive the kingdom like a, a child. 1968, the Summer Olympics were held in Mexico City. Elevation 7,400 feet, which is 1,000 feet higher than Denver. Really high. Hot. The day the marathon was run was hot. Marathon's a 26.2-mile race. All the people who ran, all the men who ran that marathon were Olympic marathon runners. And yet out of the 75 that started the race, 18 dropped out. Unbelievable. I mean, 18 marathoners, Olympic marathoners, couldn't run it because the altitude was, they didn't really count in at that time, the altitude and the heat. And it was just a miserable experience. There was a man running from Tanzania named John Stephen Harari. He was one of four people that Tanzania had sent to the Summer Olympics. And they watched him with their flag. There was just one dude and three guys behind him. And if he had run his personal best at Mexico City, he would have won the silver medal, at least maybe the gold medal. 
But 12 miles into the race, 12 miles into the race with 14 miles to go, he got tangled up with another runner. He crashed to the ground. He severely sprained his shoulder and he, uh, his knee came out of joint um, and he was blooded, blooded because of, of, of all the things that the, the medical people came to him and they said, your, your knee's out of joint, your shoulder's in bad shape, you should not run. And he said, I've, I've got to finish. And so he got up and he had to hobble. And they said, if you, if you run this race, you may never run again. I mean, this is, you're in bad shape. He said, I've got to do it. And so it's amazing. So he hobbled and he ran some and then he would walk. And every step, you can see it, excruciating pain. Every step, every step, 14 more miles, every step. And he came into the stadium in Mexico City when darkness was coming. The winner had been there, had already been finished for an hour and five minutes. I mean, he was just way behind. But he hobbled in and the people started cheering and he was able to hobble and walk across the finish line. He was interviewed afterwards. And they said, why in the world did you risk your health and run 14 miles with a dislocated knee, a bad shoulder, bleeding? He said, my country flew me 5,000 miles not to enter the marathon, but to finish it. I went, Yes. The living God in his tender mercies didn't save his people to be on the team. He saved his people for a purpose, and that's to glorify his name and to speak his name to people around us and to use our giftedness for his glory. We're not just on the team. We're to be people who make a difference. Receive the kingdom like a little child and then know you're empowered to go out and do his bidding as you take the yoke of Jesus on you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, there are times even this week when many of us have been like Naaman before he went to the Jordan. We can belittle or scoff or not give weight to the scripture. God, God forgive us. I, I pray that we as people would come and receive the kingdom like a child and our weakness, our brokenness, our humility, and then go out and make a difference as we're empowered to do your bidding. Uh, I pray that we would be men and women who want to impact our neighborhoods and our nation, our workplace environments, our, our social networks. Lord, have mercy upon us. Help us to walk in gracious humility and help us as parents and mentors and grandparents and teachers and friends say the, the most important thing my spouse or my kids or my siblings or my friends need, the most important thing they need is to get in the presence of Jesus because there's healing and refreshment and hope and, 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 and life in the presence of Jesus. So bless us, I pray, Lord. Teach us in Jesus' name.